So, if, as I mentioned, we are in Matthew chapter 5 as we uh, jump into the, really the third part of a very long series as we walk through the concept of discipleship, talk about living the life, and that, that's the first section of this series called Disciple. And uh, as we're looking at this, again, taking a step back, the bigger picture of what this is about, Jesus said to all of us, go and make disciples. So our primary focus, not just New Hope, but the church, God's people, is to make disciples. In order for us to effectively make disciples, we have to know what it means to be a disciple. And that's why we've set off on this journey that's going to take us quite some time to work through some different passages in Matthew and look at the very words of Jesus and how he describes for you and I what it means to follow him, how that happens in our lives. Not how we define it, but how he defines it, because it's extremely important to listen to what he has to say. So the last couple of weeks, and especially last week, we started into the first part of Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes. It's when Jesus gives these statements of what it means to be blessed. So if you're here last week, we talked about that, believe it or not, it's actually a blessing to be poor. It's a blessing to have nothing. It's a blessing to be poor in spirit, because that means we get to come before God with nothing. We can earn nothing. But the reality is we get everything as we surrender our life to Jesus. That's the starting point. So this is so important because what Jesus is doing for you and I in this passage, and the passages we'll go through, is he's saying this is the front door of what it means to follow me. This is how you enter in. And so it doesn't matter if you don't know Jesus or you've known him for 50 years. The doorway in is the same for all of us. And that's how Jesus is highlighting this for us to understand. And much of what was like last week, this week is very similar. What we're going to walk through and talking about the blessing of pain is very opposite of what you and I normally think and believe about what it means to follow Jesus. So as, you, as we did last week, I'm going to ask you to kind of allow your brains to be messed with a little bit by the Holy Spirit because what Jesus is wanting us to understand is some of the things that we miss that are really basic, we miss them because we think in the opposite way that he's designed us and wants us to think. So the whole concept of today is based out of Matthew chapter 5. Let me read verse 4. So this is the second of the Beatitudes where Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So before we go on, let's just break down the, the phrase that Jesus has just used there and what that means. So if you're here last week, you talked about the concept of being blessed. Blessed means happy. It actually can mean lucky. It actually means approved, like, like you get it. And it actually can even mean congratulations. So Jesus is saying congratulations when you experience pain and when you mourn. Does that sound a little backwards? When was the last time somebody congratulated you for a painful experience in your life? Hey, it's great that you're having surgery and you're in so much pain. You know, you lost a loved one. It's been a great week for you. Congratulations. We don't do that. And the reason why is the second thing you need to understand is not only context of blessing, but what Jesus is talking about when he says the word mourn. What he's specifically referring to is the mourning and the pain that we experience when we come to grips with our sin in our life. When we come face to face with our own brokenness and we feel the weight of our own sin and we understand the the deep impact it has on our lives and the lives of people around us and we feel that weight and there's a brokenness in us and there's a pain that accompanies that. That's what Jesus is saying is congratulations when you finally figure out that you are a sinner. Now, I know you're thinking, this is such a great message. I feel so encouraged today already. Don't worry, there's more to come. Don't worry, it gets better. So then Jesus says, the reason that you're congratulated, the reason that you're happy, the reason that you're lucky when you come to grips with the fact that you're a sinner 
is because it's only then that you can experience the full weight of his comfort through forgiveness. And the reason that's so important is that we can live our whole lives following Jesus, at least perceiving that we think we're following Jesus, but have never come to the moment in our life where we realize that we are sinners, we are broken, and we mourn over that fact, and we feel the weight of that. And because we've never come to that, we've never really fully experienced the depth of God's forgiveness through Jesus on the cross. We haven't. We all, yeah, I know I ask for forgiveness and God forgives me, but it never has reached the core of who we are and experienced the full comfort of what Jesus is talking about. So it's in this mindset that I want us to, to move forward this morning. And just as, as we start, I want to read, let me read verse uh, 1 of Psalm 32 because this is what David begins to explain when he says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. In fact, we'll get back to, to Psalm 32 towards the end. But understand, this is what David is describing, that, that it's actually a good place to know about our own sin, to be aware of that. Because for some of us, it's not until we are, are really fully aware of our sin that we ever fully experience God's forgiveness or know what needs to be accomplished in our lives. Last week, I shared the story of when I was playing basketball and got tangled up with a guy going to the basket and he landed on my head and my chin hit the ground and I cut my chin open and didn't know I cut my chin open until the coach pulled me off the floor physically. But the strangest thing is I never felt one bit of pain through that whole experience. Coach pulled me off, gets me over the sidelines. I realize there's blood all over my jersey. They're giving me towels to sop up the blood. And people are looking at it like, that's really bad. I'm like, really? It doesn't feel that bad until I got into the locker room. And in the locker room, I walked up to the mirror to see what everybody was like, like cringing at when they looked at my chin. And I tilted my head back and I saw the gaping hole in my chin. And it was at that moment that I actually felt pain. Before that moment, I should have like closed my eyes because it didn't hurt. But as soon as I saw that wound on my face, suddenly it started to hurt. Everybody experienced that? It's like when a little kid hurts themselves and not until they realize how bad they hurt themselves do they start screaming. It's the same thing because you realize that's me. That's what injury I've just received. And because of that, all of the senses kick in and now you start to feel the pain. The same thing is true with our own sinful activity, our own sin nature, that when we finally step in front of the mirror and we see the full impact of the injury that we've caused or the injury we've sustained, that's when we fully understand what needs to be accomplished. We understand the weight and the depth of our own sin and brokenness. So trust me, there is good news in this, but you and I have to be willing to walk through the front door that Jesus has created for you and I into a full relationship with him. So with that understanding, let me just start with three things that, talk, that, that really are blinders for you and I. These are areas that you and I become blind to the reality of our own sin. These are the things that cause that in our life. And these are things we have to address if we're going to be able to look in the mirror and see clearly what God wants us to see about ourselves so we can fully experience the comfort of his forgiveness. So the first blinder that we have to deal with is the blinder of ignorance is that you and I, if we're honest, maybe we just really don't know the full weight, the full impact, the full ugliness of our sin. We know that we're not perfect, and we know that things aren't going exactly the way that God wants them to in our life, but we don't necessarily understand the depth of what's happened because we live in this sense of, of ignorance that we, we don't really know until finally some kind of revelation hits us and we see clearly for the first time, wow, that's what my sin has done to me and to other people around me. It's, it's that moment where ignorance is removed by God's grace and the work of his Holy Spirit where he paints a picture for us that what we couldn't see before, now we can see clearly. It's what David experienced when he sinned with Bathsheba and then to cover up his sin, he sinned again 
by murdering her husband, Uriah. I mean, he went from being this great king to being an adulterer and being a murderer in just a very short period of time. And you think, come on, if you're that bad of a person, you know how bad you are. And David didn't really fully understand what he had really done. He knew he had done something wrong. That's why he tried to cover his tracks. But then God sent Nathan the prophet to him. And, And instead of Nathan walking in and said, David, you messed up. You're an adulterer and you're a murderer. He painted him a picture. He told him a story. And the story was a mirror that David had to look into, but didn't realize the reflection that he was seeing was his own reflection. He tells a story of a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had a friend come to town, and he had a huge flock. And so he could draw off his resources to, to slaughter a lamb and throw a feast for his friend. But instead, he goes to the poor man who has one lamb, and he takes that lamb, and he slaughters it for the feast. And so David hears the story, and he burns with anger towards this man. And he says, this man should be put to death for what he's done. So Nathan obviously knows that David gets it. He sees it clearly. And then he says to him, David, you are that man. And the following, what we get is we get Psalm 51, where David sees clearly his sin. He sees what he's done, and he's broken over it, and he mourns over it, and he weeps over it because he realizes the depth of what he's done. But it doesn't end there because David experienced the comfort that God brings through forgiveness. But he had to come to that moment where there was a sense of brokenness. And you and I have to come to those moments where we get to see clearly what our lives look like. See, we have an image of ourselves in our minds. Like I said, most of us, I'd say all of us, no one's going to say, hey, I'm perfect. If you you do that, you've got issues and that's another message altogether. But none of us admit that. But we, we always think, you know, we have this idea that we're not as bad as we really are. And so we have this image of the way it looks when we live out our life and the way we do things. Kind of like me, when, when I played basketball in high school, I had an image in my mind of what it looked like for me to play basketball. And it looked something like Michael Jordan, except for skin color. So I could see myself, you know, I thought it was this fabulous player. And so my first year in high school basketball, our coach knew that all of us had that kind of perception of the way we played the game, especially the way we shot the ball. And as he tried to teach us how to shoot basketball properly, even at high school, you think, well, they would figure it out by now. He knew that we didn't, and so he knew the only way for us to really understand what work needed to be done was to see the reality of the way we shot the ball right now. So one of the first things he did is he set up a video camera underneath the basket, and he had all of us shoot from the same spot on the floor. And so each time, you know, someone would come, and they'd shoot, and you'd watch them. And so, so he did this, and then he, we went into the locker room, and we all watched together everybody else shooting the ball. And you watch, and somebody goes by, and you're thinking, man, that guy really has a good shot. And then another guy, oh, he needs a little bit of work. And then there was this one kid that went flying across the screen, and his form was bad. He couldn't stand still. His arms and legs were flying all over the place. He looked totally uncoordinated, and I thought, who in the world is that? That was me. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. I was so shocked when I saw that video. I thought, oh, my goodness, I embarrass myself every time I take a shot. It was horrific. But it was only at that moment did I realize the significance of the things that my coach was trying to teach me about shooting the basketball, that how much adjustment needed to occur for me to be able to become a good shooter. And eventually I did become a good shooter, but I credit that because my coach was willing to say, take a look in the mirror. Before you think you have this one down, just take a look at what you look like and what you're not doing that you need to be doing. See, you and I need that in our lives. We need the Holy Spirit. We need each other to do that. All of us should have one or two or three people in our life that you have said, because you know they love you and they know that you can trust them, 
that you say to them at any moment, you're allowed to pull the curtain back. You're allowed to hold the mirror up to my life. You're allowed to question things in my life and say, hey, I see this and that's not cool. I know one of those people in my life is my wife. She knows me better than anybody. And early on in our marriage, that's one of the agreements we had. We, we were going we to experience the full impact of what God said. When, when a husband and wife are married, they are one flesh, which means there's no division. We know everything about each other. We know our past. We know our thought process. We know everything. She knows me better than every, anyone. And so she has the right above anyone, and I have others in my life as, as well, but she has the right to say, I see this in your life, and it's not right. And I know her love is so profound for me that I don't get defensive with it. Sometimes I do because my pride gets in the way. But I'll listen to her and I say, okay, I don't see that, but you see that. So I'm going to trust that I need to address that. Do you have those kind of people in your life that they will say something to you? And instead of getting defensive and getting angry about it, you actually think about it and think, wow, maybe they're right. Maybe what they're saying needs to be adjusted in my life. If you don't have that, you should have that. You should have that. You should be in a small group. And guys, we're going to talk about things called life transformation groups at the barbecue on that Friday night. So I encourage you to be there about really holding each other accountable, not to point the finger of judgment, but to bring along strong encouragement in our lives to move forward into what God's doing in our lives. So the first thing you and I have to deal with, the blindness we have to remove is the blindness of ignorance, that we just don't see the full reality of the sin in our lives. Second thing, the second blinder is callousness. Over time, you and I, whether we know it or not, we allow ourselves to sin over and over and over and over again. And the first time it happened, all of us can go back to the moment when we first engaged in a behavior that we knew was wrong. We felt shame and guilt. We felt a sense of conviction. And then the second time we did it, we felt that again, but it was a little less. Then the third time, it was a little less. Then the fourth and the fifth, and before you know it, When you and I were involved in that behavior, we know it's wrong, but we've somehow turned down the volume on the Holy Spirit, and we no longer want to hear what he has to say. And so we can go along and do what we're going to do, and we become, in a sense, desensitized to our own sin because it's become so repetitive that there's a callousness of our heart that doesn't feel the depth of the Holy Spirit saying to us, this is wrong, and there is a better way. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He says, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. It's that habitual sin that leads to a hardening of the heart. It starts with ignorance, but it moves to eventually the callousness in our life that we don't even feel anything anymore. We just do it because we become numb to our own sin. It's like, maybe you probably heard this. It's, I, I, it's probably legend, but some people have said this is reality. I don't know. I have to go up to Alaska and interview an Eskimo to find out if this is legit. But it, it's a perfect image of what Paul talks about here. It's the way that legend tells us that Eskimos used to hunt wolves to get their skin. So wolves are actually pretty good at hunting themselves. And so to hunt them... They had to find a way to be able to engage a very dangerous predator and yet still be able to hunt them and kill them. So instead of going after them and chasing them, they would set a trap. They would take a knife or they would take a sword and they would dip it in seal's blood and they would do it over and over and over again. And every time they would dip it in blood, they'd let it freeze. So then after a number of times, it was basically a blood sickle. It was frozen blood on the blade of a knife. Then they would take that knife and they would, or sword and they would stick the end of it, not the blade, but the end of it, the handle, into the ground, and they would just wait. 
Because a wolf had a keen sense of smell. They could smell the blood. They would come to the blade. They would smell the seal's blood and they would start to lick. But as they're licking this frozen blood sickle, they begin to slowly taste the blood of the seal. But because it's frozen, the more they lick, the more their tongue becomes numb because it's being frozen by the frozen blood. But as they continue to lick, the warmth of their mouth warms up the blood and causes it to defrost, eventually exposing the blade. And as they continue to lick, their their tongue is numb and they're licking the blade and it's cutting their tongue. And the blood they now taste is not the blood of the seal. It's their own blood. Until finally they bleed out. And then the Eskimo comes and collects their prize. Now, I know that's disgusting to think, I didn't come to church to hear that today. I know, that's a brutal image. I could have got a video clip. That would have been really interesting, huh? But what it captures for you and I, that, that that's, that's the ugliness of our own callousness to our own sin. That we get to the point where we're so involved in our own sin, we don't even realize the very thing we're doing is the very thing that is killing us. And we don't even feel it anymore. Because we become desensitized to it. We become callous. So we're blind to ignorance. We're blind by callousness. And then the third thing is that we're blind to our own brokenness by selfishness. This is the biggest issue for all of us. We are selfish by nature. We choose ourselves first by nature. And when we do that, what happens is that we don't see our decision right here and how that impacts everybody around us. Because it's self-centered. When we do something, we do it for our best interest, and it, it comes at the expense of other people around us. That is human nature. That's the way we function. That's the way we live, is that ultimately we want to be selfless when we follow Jesus, but we default back to ultimately when push comes to shove, I want to do what's best for me. I want to do what feels best for me. And that usually comes at the expense of other people. Perfect illustration of this is when we get in our cars. Majority of people behind the wheel of our car are not very generous people. Wouldn't we be willing to admit that even ourselves? The most mild-mannered people suddenly become road rage fanatics when you get behind the wheel of a car. It's amazing how I know for myself I can be driving down the road and I'm in a great mood, but somebody cuts me off and, oh my gosh, you must be a demon in human flesh that needs to be cast out. Anybody relate to me? Okay. Why? Because they're selfish and I'm selfish and I should be first and they should be second and they think it's the opposite. And so when, you know, when you're driving and everybody's supposed to merge and everybody's supposed to alternate cars, who, who starts counting cars? I do. And then when somebody gets in and two cars get in, you're like, oh, now wait a second here. Why do we do that? Because it's about us. And it's like when you drive by an accident usually, you know, especially if it's non-injury or or if it's injury, but someone doesn't die, you're like, you think about it for about 10 seconds, but once you get past the accident, you're just so glad that the traffic's gone. Anybody want to admit that's true? We do it. Who cares that person's totaled their car and they're going to probably end up in the hospital? I got to get home, you know, right? See, we, we do that all the time. We don't think about other people. We just think about ourselves. And when we do that, what's happened is we're not seeing clearly our own lives, that every decision that we make based on selfish means ultimately will impact somebody else in their life because we have to somehow do that at the expense of other people. That's, that's the myth that we live in, that when we sin, it's not hurting anybody else. Yes, it is. It's hurting everybody else. The cumulative impact of sin in our world breaks down creation, breaks down relationships. So you may sin here and think, God oh, doesn't impact anybody else. Yes, it does. 
Because all of us have sinned. All of us are guilty. It doesn't matter if you've sinned once or a million times. All of us are culpable. All of us have to take responsibility. All of us are selfish by nature. Now, aren't you glad that the message doesn't end right there? Because that's kind of the bad news. But you and I have to come to grips with our own sin, and we have to be aware of our own blindness. So how do we embrace this brokenness? How do we come to the place of feeling the pain of our sin and mourning that? How do we do that in our lives? There's a few things that we have to stop doing in order for this to happen. The first thing is this. Stop running. If we're really going to be blessed because we mourn over our sin and experience the comfort that Jesus wants to bring, you and I have to stop running away from him. Now, it's, it's not that outright kind of, I know God's there, so I'm running over there, and so I just keep running the opposite direction. It's that you and I live our lives in such a way that we live at such a fast pace, a busy clip in life, that we never really have to slow down enough to listen to God. That's why I think some of us live busy lives. Because if I ever stop, then I actually have to look at my life and I have to think about what's going on. I have to listen to what God wants to say. But if I just stay busy enough, then I really never have to fully hear what God's saying to me because I'm just so busy. It's amazing how thousands of years can go by and human beings never change. Listen to what Jesus said, Luke chapter 14, verses 16 through 20. He's using the illustration of a banquet, talking about calling people to his kingdom and his family. Listen to the way this unfolds. As Jesus replied, as verse 16, it said, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And then finally, still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. What are they saying? I'm too busy. I have other more important things to come and to be at this banquet. I'm too busy doing all these things. You know what? Those three things are three things that you and I struggle with as well. It's the same excuses that we give God today that we don't listen to and respond to him. A guy goes and buys a field, so he's got something now he owns. He's got a possession that he's desired in his life, and he finally gets it. But the tragedy is now that land that he owns actually owns him. And that's what we live in in our culture, is that we are busy accumulating stuff that usually comes along with a thing called debt that we have to service and we have to fulfill and we have to work hard for so that we can have our toys and all the bells and whistles and we think, if I have that, I'll be happy and it's the next thing that's bigger and better and greater and I have to have all these things not realizing that God comes to us and says, stop. Stop running after possessions because if you keep going after that, you won't be able to listen to my voice anymore because all that you will be controlled by is what that possession requires of you. That's our culture. You know, a few years ago when the economy was bad, you know what the the government's answer to a bad economy was? We've had two presidents say the same thing. Go spend more money. What? That's the reason we got to where we are now. Because we don't want to listen, so we turn the volume down. If it's not possessions, it becomes a job or a career. Guy goes and buys five yoke of oxen. I got to go try them out because this is going to make me money. This is my business. I'm going to use these oxen to make money, so i got to make sure. I can't go to some silly banquet. I have to go make sure that I have my job secure so I can make money, so I can be happy. Sometimes we, we, we think of it as a badge of 
efficiency and a badge of acceptance and a badge of, ex- of, of some kind of significance if we work 60 hours a week. Hey, I'm, I mean, my job just requires that. And I know it's really hard. And I know some of you in this room, you work 60 hours a week. And I, I want you to hear, I'm not judging you for doing that. But if that becomes the way that you keep life moving so fast that you can never slow down enough to listen to God, then that job has become your God. God is not impressed with the hours we work. But sometimes it becomes what we're proud of. And this man, ah, I'm too busy. I'm too busy working. If we're too busy working to listen to God, then maybe we need a different job. Maybe we need a different career. Then the last one is really hard. Because Jesus intentionally mentioned these three because the man says, hey, I just got married. In Jewish culture, when you got married, you got to take a year to be with your spouse. Your, your life adjusted. Thinking, I want to become Jewish. I want a year off. I want to get married. Suddenly everybody's getting married, right? So he's saying, hey, I, if I'm going to be a good husband, I don't have time to go to the banquet. I've got to be with my wife. This is my bride. I just got married. You can't expect me to not be a good husband, right? You know what Jesus is saying, I believe, by highlighting the fact that the man says, I just got married? That you and I have to be careful that we don't make family our God at the expense of of God being God. I know that does, a lot of people, oh man, I'm probably stepping on some toes. Sometimes we make our family more important than what God's doing because we got to be good parents. I know, I'm guilty. I, I sat through five hours of tournament basketball yesterday to watch Jordan play two games. I was tired, but I had to be a good parent with all the other parents there, right? I'm not saying that's, that you and I shouldn't do that. But what I've watched in our culture is that our kids and our families become so important, everything else gets squeezed out. Because we're going from here to there because, hey, I got to be a good parent. I have to have a good family. That's why the the minivan has become the dining room and the living room and the changing room and the TV room all in one. It's all on wheels. Why? Because you're always on, on your way to some other sporting event or some other ballet or some, right? Why is it getting so quiet in here? And there's a balance there because I think Jesus said, if you're not willing to leave your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, you're not worthy to follow me. He said that. I didn't say it. Don't get mad at Pastor John. Take it up with Jesus. That's why you and I have to be really careful that we don't get so busy with the rhythm of family that we don't hear what God's saying to us about far deeper and more profound things like our own lives and sin. We have to be careful. We'll move on because I know some of you are thinking, I don't know about that. Take it up with Jesus, please. Moving on. The second thing about embracing our brokenness is stop running, but then stop ignoring. See, we can run and keep our lives moving fast, but then there's, there's that conscious decision that you and I will make to ignore what we know is there. We ignore that there's something, we, we know there's something wrong, but we really don't want to know what's there, so we just kind of turn it down. When was the last time you took that hard look at your life? You took a step back and you just looked and you already had somebody else look and say, what's going on in my life? I think the scariest prayer in all of scripture is Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. Listen to this. Search me, God. Know my heart and test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. Are you kidding me? That is the hardest prayer ever. You're saying to God, pull the veil away, strip me naked, leave me bare and wide open, and then tell me what's wrong with me. How many of us just love to wake up in the morning and pray that prayer? 
No, it's usually God get bless me with a good day. Amen. And I'm off and running. But that's, that's what we are supposed to do. Okay, God, it's time for a spiritual checkup. So show me what I don't see. Open my eyes to what I'm blind to. I want to know the reality of my life. I don't want to live in denial. I don't want to live in ignorance. I don't want to ignore any longer what I know is there that needs to be dealt with. It's like that moment, if you've watched, most of you have seen The Biggest Loser. We've all seen the show. It's the moment early on when they bring in the contestants who are over, overweight, and they bring them in and they subject them to Dr. Heisinga and all his tests. And he runs them through all the blood work and all the tests and everything, and then he sits them down and he begins to explain to them how grave their situation is. And he'll have a 36-year-old man who is 250 pounds overweight, and he'll say to him, you know, you have the age of a 36-year-old man, but your internal body is the, is the age of a 66-year-old man. And they just can't believe it. Many of them start weeping, and they can't realize what they've done and, and what they're struggling with. And the weight hits them. It's that checkup that, that you have to have. You know, it, it's like you've got to go to the doctor. I've, I've met guys, and women, you are so far ahead of us, guys. But I have, I have guys, friends, I haven't been to the doctor in 20 years. Really? You're the kind of guy that tomorrow is going to drop dead, and the doctor would have said, 10 years ago, we could have prevented this. But man, you didn't go to the doctor because you, you weren't weak like your friends, right? Sorry, some of you are going, yeah, that's me. And, and some wives are going, yeah, honey, you need to get to the doctor. I just went for a physical a couple of weeks ago. I don't like physicals. I don't want the doctor poking around at me. But I know he may see things that I'm not aware of, that he can catch things that I need to address that maybe I'm not feeling yet, but are eventually going to come to bear on my body. It's the same thing. When we come before God, we have to say, okay, God, search me. See if there's any offensive way in me and help me to move forward from this. We have to be able to do that. So we're no longer ignoring. And then the third thing is that you and I have to stop blaming. When it comes to our sin and failure, we're professional blamers. We find a way to pin it on somebody else, or we find a way to say it was circumstances, or it's my parents' fault, or it's somebody else's fault, it's the idiot driver in front of me's fault, whoever. It's somebody else's fault. Now, there are things that come to bear because all of our sin impacts other people, and I understand that. But most of the time, it's just that you and I have to own our own sin. We can't turn and start blaming everything and everyone around us. It's our own sin. Blaming is something that is innate within us. It's part of our human nature. And it goes back to the very beginning in the garden. When Adam and Eve violated what God told them not to do, and then he, God comes walking in the garden. This is amazing. Adam does, and Eve does, what you and I do all the time. Let me read verse 12, and then verse 13 of Genesis 3. So they've been caught. God comes in the garden, and it says, The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, can you imagine? So let's say God's here, Adam's here, and Eve's here. So Adam's all, it's not me, it's her. And then Eve says, going on, and it says, Then the Lord said to the woman, what is, what, what is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. What is that? That's blame. Adam found a way in three or four words to blame the God of the universe and the woman, but not take responsibility himself. That's what we do. When we get exposed, we find a way to say, well, it's not really my fault. I, I, I didn't really do this. It's, it, it's the circumstances, or it's this person, or it's this temptation. It's not really me. No, it's you. It is. It's all of us. We have to come to grips with that. 
And we live in a culture that embraces this mentality constantly. That's why we sue over everything. When something bad happens to us, it has to be somebody else's fault. It can't possibly be our fault. You know how many times McDonald's has been sued by people who are obese? Seriously. It's insane the number of people who have, got, who have literally filed lawsuit against McDonald's because they said, you made me fat. Really? This is the crazy thing. A couple years ago in Brazil, a man actually won a suit against McDonald's and McDonald's had to pay him $17,500 because he was obese. This is what he said. This is what he justified. He said, the reason that I got fat is because he worked there for 12 years and over that 12-year period, he put on 65 pounds and he blamed McDonald's for it. And he said, the reason it's their fault is because I felt as an employee obligated to make sure I tasted the food to make sure it was okay. They never asked him to do that. I worked at McDonald's. They don't ask you to taste the food, okay? Secondly, he said, I felt obligated to eat the free lunches that they offered me every shift that I worked. Are you kidding me? Don't go to McDonald's. I know it sounds brutal, okay? You're probably thinking, wow, Pastor John's really talking about weight issues today. I wonder what his issue is. It just seems to correlate to the physical and the spiritual reality of where we're at. We have to stop blaming wouldn't it be great if you stood before God and you took full responsibility for your sin and God said, you know what, that one, that one does not on you, that's on them. Wouldn't that be great? Instead of God saying, no, 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 that's not on them, that's on you. We take responsibility, we accept the weight of that. And the final thing, and then we'll get back to, just to close with Psalm 32. Stop avoiding. Just stop avoiding. When was the last time you stopped avoiding God and you actually encountered Him? This is true for all of us. We avoid places and situations and relationships and contexts where we know there's a chance that I'm going to have to experience some kind of conviction from God, so I'm going to avoid it. And the tragedy is that you and I can live this out right in the middle of what we would say is a spiritual context. The church. You can avoid God by coming to church 50 years of your life. You can. You could just never have to really encounter him. You can play the game. And you and I think that somehow we're getting away with it. Somehow we've gotten away even though we're in church or even though we say we're Christians, we're really avoiding God because we never have to be personal with him. The problem is is that you can't avoid God. That's what David said, Psalm 139, going on in that same psalm or earlier in the psalm, verse 7, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David's saying, nowhere. Some people think, I can hide in church. I can hide in a Bible study. That's why Jesus said scary words when some, someday when we stand before him, he will say to some people that, who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these miracles? Didn't we do all this Christian stuff? And what does he say? I never knew you. Why? Because we just found a way to avoid him and never really have to encounter him. And the encounter comes not because it's a group of people. The encounter comes when you and I eventually realize that God is not going to give up pursuing me, and I need to stop running. Moses ran when he killed an Egyptian. He thought he could get out to the desert in Midian, and he could somehow avoid God. Forty years, he probably thought he was doing pretty good until the burning bush appears, and God speaks to him and calls him back. Jonah thought he could get on a boat going the opposite direction to get away from God, and we know how that story turned out for him. God said, go to Nineveh. Guess where Jonah eventually ended up? Nineveh. Took a fish or a whale to do it, And sometimes we hope, we wish that God would use a burning bush or a whale. I don't think we want either of those. But he uses means in our life to say, hey, stop avoiding me. 
It's kind of like I've shared before. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you see somebody in the store that you really don't want to have contact with. What do you do? You find a way to shop on a different aisle. Even though you don't need anything on that aisle, suddenly that aisle becomes very valuable to you because it's the aisle that they're not on. And we do that with God. The problem is God is on every aisle of your supermarket, okay? There isn't a place he's not shopping. So if you go to the next aisle, guess who's going to be there? God will be there. So what he's saying to you, just give up. Just stop running and stop avoiding me because I am present. And I want you to come to grips with the brokenness of your life. Not because God wants to rub it in or shame us, but because God wants to forgive us. But he can't forgive us until we come to grips with our own sin. But that's his heart for us. And he's not holding, he's not the one that's holding it back. We're the one that's become the barrier to his forgiveness being extended to us and us experiencing the fullness of his comfort in our lives. So as I mentioned, let me just close, go back to Psalm 32, David's words. So what does it look like to experience God's comfort, God's forgiveness? David describes the whole journey for us in Psalm 32, verse 1 through 5. He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's the verse I read earlier, but going on. He says, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There it is. See, David understood that he could be happy. And he could be blessed when he would confess his sin, when he'd own his sin. Why? Because he knew eventually God would lift the weight of his sin off of him that is crushing him and would give him that freedom and that relief and that comfort so that he could experience the joy and the, the, the true blessing of what it meant to come to grips with his sin. For us today, God brings you and I to a crossroad to make a decision. Am I going to fully own my sin? Am I going to fully take a look at what's going on in my life? Again, not so that I can be shamed or condemned, but so that I can come to grips with who I am and how broken I am so that I can experience comfort and forgiveness from God. This is the doorway Jesus opens. We want to skip that and go around the side. We don't want to walk through the doorway of pain or mourning or brokenness over our sin. But Jesus says, if you really want to experience the depth of forgiveness in your life, you must come to grips with the brokenness of your own life. Would you close your eyes with me? In a moment, the the worship team is going to come and we're going to sing a song called Majesty, which captures for you and I our own journey of sin and brokenness and how God accepts us and, and extends his love to us right where we're at. But before we get there, I want you to allow the Lord to open your eyes. And even as I was thinking through this message, and even as I was sitting through worship this morning, I just felt like I had to confess, God, I know I do this, but I don't do this enough. I need to do this more in my life, not to beat myself up, but to make sure that God truly has the right to search me, truly has the right to show me the offensive ways in my life so that I can experience forgiveness through him. That right now I know that, that maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you've never made a commitment to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you've known him for all your life, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. But right now you know that that God is wanting you to walk through this doorway of coming to grips with your own brokenness. 
But what I'm going to ask you to do right now, I'm just going to ask you to let God play the movie of your life before you. Let him play the video of the things that maybe you don't want to see. Let him hold up the mirror of the reflection of what's truly real about your life. And just for a moment, look at that. Again, not to bring shame, not to bring judgment. But you and I need to look at that because now as you see that, because even now, some of you, you know the things about your life that are true. And the step after seeing them is confessing them, is saying them to the Lord, saying, Lord, I know that I've done this. And in confessing that, you are making a request to God. I am coming to grips with my brokenness. And by confessing, I am asking for your gift of forgiveness that you made possible on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross took the sin of that reflection back to you of the brokenness of your life. And Jesus paid the price for that. He took on God's wrath and judgment on himself so that you didn't have to. So that when you and I confess our sin... God extends his forgiveness to us. So right now, begin to confess those things to God. Begin to tell him. He already knows, but he's waiting for you to acknowledge that. Because when you acknowledge that, Jesus brings to bear his forgiveness to what he did on the cross right now for you. And then now you begin to experience the depth of the comfort that Jesus brings through forgiveness. Because in experiencing the depth of that forgiveness, what it does is it changes our perspective of sin. Because now in the future, we can't go back to the habitual sin that we used to live in and be desensitized because God's forgiveness makes us sensitive. It allows us once again to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that we can make choices not to do something that we know that we will regret or we will need forgiveness for later. So, Lord Jesus, I ask right now as we are confessing our sin, as we're allowing you to hold the mirror up, Lord, this is not easy. But, Jesus, I am so grateful that you have created a doorway of how we enter into a relationship with you, how we are reconciled back to God through you. And so I pray today that not one of us would stand on the outside of this door of being blessed by mourning over our sins so we can experience your comfort. None of us would stand at the doorway and not enter, but Lord Jesus, we would step through embracing our own brokenness and knowing it's true, but then accepting your forgiveness and your freedom and your righteousness and your purity in our lives. So Lord Jesus, would you come in these moments, solidify that so that when we leave this place, we didn't just come to a service. We just didn't do church. Jesus, we encountered you and now we're different. Now we've changed because you've transformed our souls. Lord Jesus, would you do that in your name?